from Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. This is where we are right now. They are cold, so we will keep them warm. They are hungry, so we will feed them. They need our help, so we must do what we can. That is Governor J.B. Pritzker. He announced this week the state of Illinois will provide more funding to help deal with the migrant influx that the Chicago area is seeing. More than 20,000 people have arrived there in just over a year, mostly bussed in by the governor of Texas. We'll discuss the governor's decision in Illinois and also the current situation for migrants with winter on the way. That and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie has also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And our guest this week, Dan Petrella. He covers government for the Chicago Tribune. Dan, it's always good to have you back with us. Glad to be here. So, Dan, it was a surprise, at least to me, this week that the governor announced this money to help migrants in that situation. He did not that did not seem to be on the table during the recent fall session. So I guess what changed? Yeah, you know, it was a little bit surprising, too. Um, It actually first sort of started coming to light uh, after Mayor Brandon Johnson here in Chicago passed his first budget um, and then sort of uh, dribbled out some of the details of what was to come from the state uh, because the city did not budget for nearly enough money to cover its costs of housing and feeding and um, assisting the migrants who have been been arriving in the city. So um, on Thursday morning, the governor came out and said that the state would be spending $160 million more uh, to assist the city with with its effort, which was, as you said, quite a surprise because for months, uh, you know, every time the, the governor was asked by reporters about what more the state could or should do to assist the situation, he really pivoted to what the state already had done and already was doing in terms of providing services, uh, rental assistance, case management, things like that for the people who were living in the city's shelters, but really seemed, uh, you know, reluctant to to provide more uh, more funding. Um, He and Speaker Chris Welsh made clear, as you said, before the fall veto session that the um, the topic of a supplemental appropriation for additional migrant funding was not on the table. Um, and then a week to the day after the legislature adjourned for the year, the governor comes out and announces this this um, infusion of money. Well, Dan, I guess two questions. How much has the state given already? Do we know that number? And then where is this amount of money going to come from? Uh, before yesterday's announcement, the state said that they had either spent or committed about $478 million to uh, to the effort. Some of that covered the cost of housing migrants last fall and into uh, early this spring in hotels around the Chicago area. Um, some of that is the rental assistance the state has been providing to people who are able to move out of uh, either the city shelters or earlier out of those hotels. Um, and this new money is going to be coming from shifting some um, funds around within the Department of Human Services budget. The governor uh his administration is hopeful that when the legislature returns in the spring, uh, they can use some surplus money the state is expecting in the current year's budget to sort of backfill um, backfill those costs. But I'm sure there will also be pressure um, from City Hall to to devote even more to to the effort, um, unless we see a, a pretty dramatic shift in in the arrivals, uh, you know, in the next few months. Charlie, I think uh, we we mentioned this was a bit of a surprise, but. 
I guess really maybe not so much because this seemed, and we've been watching this for weeks now, as winter creeping closer, that a real humanitarian crisis was unfolding there. Uh, so at the end of the day, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Is that, is that a good way to put it? Yeah, I, I would say so. And I think what kind of drove things home for people was we've, we've had, all things considered, a pretty warm fall. And October was, I guess, if I'm not mistaken, the warmest October on record. And so the urgency was there, you know, in your in your head. You knew this was the case, but emotionally, you really didn't sense it. And then suddenly we get this snowfall. And here these people are from, from a tropical environment, suddenly living in these tents in a snowfall. And I think that drove home, wait a second, you know, this is, this is Northern Illinois, this is Chicago, it's going to get colder than all get out. And these folks, there's danger that they're going to be freezing on the streets. And so we got to do something. And so I think that may have been the jolt that got them thinking about it. And I think if I'm not mistaken, the governor mentioned three or four times how he did not want children freezing on the streets when the cold weather really sets in. I thought it was interesting too that a lot of this stuff is going to be done by the state itself and not rely on the city. I think it would be fair to say that the city's response has not been all that effective or efficient. It's kind of been disjointed. They're not they're kind of floundering around. And I think the governor looks at it. And as I said, he doesn't want to see kids dying. And it also looks bad for the state if the largest city can't handle this. And it would go to, it would just support, I think, the the hypothesis that is driving Governor Abbott to send these people up here, that you guys, you liberals, you're all hypocrites. You talk about wanting to help all these people when it's down in my state, but when you get it in your state, no, you won't help them. And and whether it's Abbott or Pritzker or whoever, it seems to me what's missing in here is a federal government response. Dan, is that fair to say? Yes, and that's the point that the um, that the governor has really tried to drive home for months now. But I think it's clear to anyone who observes Washington, even from afar, that um, getting any kind of of help or resolution through especially the Republican-controlled House is a, is a, a long shot, might be too weak a term for it. You know, um, they were just barely able to, to pass a spending bill to keep the government open this week um, after the whole turmoil of firing the previous Speaker of the U.S. House. Um, so as much as we, we might want a federal solution, I think, you know, state and local officials also have to be cognizant of what the reality of the situation is. Not that they shouldn't be putting pressure on, on Washington to provide help. And I know, um, you know, the governor as recently as, as last week had a private conversation with the president when he was here in Illinois. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, like Charlie said, it's not surprising that the state is stepping in. I think part of what is somewhat surprising to observers is that it took this long for the state to step in. Um, the fact that Chicago gets cold and snowy in the winter is not a surprise to anyone. Um, it's been pretty clear for uh, you know, for at least weeks, if not months now, that, that the city was um, struggling to expand its shelter capacity fast enough to house everyone. And, um, you know, the governor, def again, I think I said this earlier in the show, but kind of deflected responsibility to the city every time those questions were raised. Um, 
And I think what's also interesting is, uh, you know, one of the things the state is going to be providing money for, $65 million of this $160 million is for um, basically a tent encampment, which is an idea that um, first came out publicly when, when Mayor Brandon Johnson floated it late in the summer. The governor in his first public remarks on it was somewhat skeptical of the idea, said he had concerns, preferred bricks and mortar shelter if they could do it. But now the state is going to be paying $65 million to set up one of these uh, one of these encampments, um, and they're going to have to get it off the ground pretty quickly if they're going to do it before the weather gets really cold. Yeah, and Charlie, I know you've talked before on, on the show about you thought there were maybe ways to uh, provide some of that brick and mortar uh, type of shelter for people. But with, you know, here we are almost at Thanksgiving and, of course, winter weather in Chicago that can come at any time now. They really don't have the time to renovate some of these buildings and do things like that. They're they're just so far behind. I'm, I'm guessing the tent shelter is probably the best way to go. I think it's under the current conditions, it's probably the, I guess it would be the best way, all things considered. Ideally, they should still be attempting to work with existing buildings, brick and mortar buildings to get them ready. The, the village of Oak Park has really stepped forward in terms of utilizing its faith community in providing shelter for immigrants who have been staying at the Austin police station, which is right across the border in Chicago, on the west side of Chicago. And churches have been taking people in. Some churches have provided showers. Uh, some individual families in Oak Park have actually invited families, Venezuelan families, to live with them. And one of the Oak Park leaders said, we'd like to see other suburban communities get involved with this. And I've also seen it reported elsewhere where some individuals in downstate communities are saying, we should get on the ball and try and have some of those folks move down to our communities because we need the workers. We need people to fill these jobs. And also, if we grew our community, it would be good for us just because we've been losing population. So there's a lot of factors involved. What One of the things that figured into the timing of the governor's announcement was that the governor's revenue forecasters came out earlier this week and said that the state is going to do much better in its general funds this current fiscal year than the original prognostications upon which the budget was built. They were estimating at the beginning of the year something like 50.6 billion and the latest estimate is 52 billion, which gives them a cushion, some of which can be used to, to, to go to cover whatever shortfalls might occur in the Department of Human Service budget, which is where the, the money for the governor's plan is going to come from. And part of it is the legislature, when they pass the budget, every year they, they pass an implementation bill, which adjusts these, these statutes to match the dollars. And in this particular implementation bill, they also said that the governor has the authority to transfer among line items, individual allocations in a department's budget up to 8% of a line item to take it from one item to another. So for example, he could take 8% of 
money for printing and use it for commodities, that sort of thing. And I'm pretty sure the, the department has a lot of unfilled vacancies. And so if you just don't fill the vacancy for another couple of months, you save a lot of money that way. So I think, as I say, that the fact that the state is doing better economically than was anticipated at the beginning of the year makes it easier for the governor to be able to do this. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Dan Petrello of the Chicago Tribune. Dan, I've got kind of a two-part question on this, and one of the things kind of leading into some of the things Charlie was just talking about, one of the announcements or part of that announcement from the governor was that a centralized intake center is going to be created for new arrivals, and I'm guessing this is, you know, they get off the bus, they're going to be taken here, they're going to be processed, everybody's going to know everything uh, that they know about these folks and uh, you get them the assistance they need, things like that. Is that not being done now in any way? I, I don't know how the city is handling it. It's sort of uh, more more scattershot at this, at this point. And part of the problem is that uh, they don't always know ahead of time when the buses are going to arrive. They get some intelligence from, um, you know, nonprofits that are on the ground in Texas about, um, you know, there's a bus coming today. Here's how many people are on it. Here's where they're from, that sort of thing. But they haven't really been, um, you know, screening each and every person who arrives in any sort of centralized way, is my understanding. And um, one of the things they're hoping here is that they will be able to identify people who maybe, um, you know, are just hoping to pass through Chicago rather than stay here. They might have, you know, friends and family in other um, other places nearby, or they might actually want to head off to Kansas City or Boston or, or wherever as their final destination. So they're hoping they can um, sort of relieve a little bit of the burden. They estimate about 10% um, on the shelters by by helping people move along to who intend to go to other places move along to those places. Um, one thing I would note there is that officials in Chicago have been somewhat critical of uh, Denver, for example, which has been paying for one-way train and bus tickets for people to come from Denver to Chicago. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the state manages that and, and whether uh, other cities and other places start to cry foul over people being sent uh, or people coming from Chicago to to their locales. Well, I guess my other thought with this then is if the state is involved in sort of processing these people as they come off these buses or trains or whatever, they're, however they're getting there, is, will that make it easier? I don't know if this was addressed or not for the state to possibly relocate in other parts of Illinois to say, hey, uh, we're, you know, we have state property or someplace these people can stay in, in Urbana or in the Quad Cities or something. That It seems to me the state being in charge of this could lead to more of a filtering out of some of the migrants to other parts of Illinois. I don't know if that's, a, if that's been addressed or not. That doesn't seem to be... Um part of the plan necessarily. I mean, they, they will help people move along if they intend to go someplace else. But, um, you know, the the state is really trying to provide, you know, money and sort of um, organizational resources and, and sort of still let the city run the show on this stuff as much as possible. So I think that is an open question, whether, whether there are ways to, um, you know, divert people to other their options outside of the, the Chicago uh, shelter system. But the state at this point is not... Um, you know, standing up shelter itself, other than this uh, tent encampment, either in the city or or outside, as far as I understand. 
And I guess my my final question, this would really be, have we heard any reaction from, say, black and Latino lawmakers? Many of them have been critical, saying, you know, our communities need assistance. We've been promised assistance in a lot of ways, and it's not always come. Have we heard anything from those lawmakers or anybody, uh, community leaders, since the governor's announcement? Um, you know, we talked to a couple, uh, my colleague Jeremy Gorner, who's our, our Springfield's uh, uh, reporter, talked to a couple of lawmakers yesterday who, um, members of the Black Caucus who, you know, supported what the governor is doing here, but also want to um, keep in mind that there are homeless people who have long been in the city of Chicago and surrounding areas and, and um, you know, people who ne- aren't necessarily homeless, but, are, you know, are struggling, who need resources as well. So they want that to be part of the, the broader conversation. And we've mentioned this in, in the past that uh, and he referred to it in his news release as a cornerstone of this plan is the attempt to move thousands of individuals through the federal red tape that would allow them to work and they they're hoping to cut down the amount of time so that someone doesn't have to work doesn't have to wait maybe a year to get a work permit and can maybe do it in a couple months because you continually read the stories of the folks who are here from Venezuela and other countries saying that they want to work. They don't want to take handouts. They want to support themselves. Back home, they were maybe a professional, maybe they were an entrepreneur. And here they want to get going again, but there's this red tape and there's this fear that if they work without official authorization, they could be deported. And so the governor is is stressing, we want to cut this red tape, we want to get these people work permits as quickly as we can. And the goal is to get, well, and, and, and what the governor said, that the state wants to have submitted applications of roughly 11,000 of these folks, these eligible asylum seekers, so that the they, they can get their work permits. And I think that's really important. Let's move on to a couple of other topics we did last week, sort of wrap up the fall session and what happened and what didn't happen there. Uh, Let's talk about a couple of things that did not get accomplished during that period. One of those, there was a big push to have the Invest in Kids program uh, to have that extended. It's set to expire at the end of the calendar year here. This is a scholarship program. People can get a tax break for donating to scholarships, and it's supposed to help underprivileged kids uh, attend private schools. Uh, Dan, this did not get through. I know you've talked to some people in the Chicago area about this. Is there still some hope that something could happen in the spring? You know, I think the advocates who have been at the Capitol um, every time I've been there over the last year and a half or so are going to continue to push for the program to, to be revived um, they, there might be some support, um, you know, there'll definitely be support among Republicans. There might be some support among the majority Democrats as well. Part of the problem is that not enough of the Democrats, um, supported the program to convince democratic leaders to, to move forward with trying to save it. Um, you know, it's, it's a controversial program because, uh, you know, it's not direct state money to private schools, but it is a roundabout way of, um, you know, giving people a tax credit, which takes money out of the state coffers and, and giving it in the form of, scholarships uh, to students. Um, you know, there's controversies about who's getting the scholarships, whether it's serving enough, um, you know, uh, students of color, uh, low-income students. Um, you know, advocates will say that everybody in the program is a uh, qualified low-income student, but the, um, you know, financial parameters of the program 
go up to 400% of the federal poverty level, which for a family of four is like $120,000 a year. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, poverty or, or low income is in sort of in the eye of the beholder in that regard. And there's also questions about how well the state has been tracking data on who is actually getting the scholarships. Some of the opponents of the program have pointed out that, you know, about half of the schools that take the scholarship money don't have any any black students and about a third, uh, if I recall the numbers off the top of my head correctly, don't have any Latino students. Um, supporters of the program have have uh, pointed out, you know, anecdotal cases where the numbers that the Department of Revenue has collected from these schools on their demographics don't match what the schools themselves um, themselves say they are. So, uh, you know, there's a question about how well the state is actually keeping track of, of who's getting the money. Um, I think it's going to be a, a, a you know a tough a tough uh, hill to climb for the advocates if they want to bring it back because I think it's a lot easier to convince people to you know push push back a sunset date on a program by a year or five years or whatever than it is to um, to revive something that has been shut down. Yeah, and Shirley, it seems as though if you're going to bring it back, you're going to have to tighten things up, uh, and that might not work even then. But you're going to have to really tighten up on who who uh, benefits from this program. Yeah, I think I think that's true. One of the complaints that some of the Democrats had was that the uh, minority representation is really low, that scholarships were given to students who already were at these private schools. And the Department of Revenue came out with uh, numbers that suggested or that showed that of the 9,600 uh, awardees, well, two thirds of them lived in families up to 185% of the federal poverty level, which is roughly $56,000 for a family of four. The other third did much better than that. And as Dan suggested, some of them were folks who you would think would be pretty well able to pay the tuition themselves. And of course, another point that opponents have made is that there's nothing to stop me from actually making a donation to my favorite private school and getting an income tax deduction for it. Now, I would say as we head into the spring session, a couple of things to keep in mind. I was impressed with the displays that the advocates for investing kids put on during the, the fall session, the, the people they brought down to the state house, the fact that they crowded the rotunda with kids saying, save my school, save my scholarship. And so we're going to be looking at an election year, and conceivably, the, the same folks who organize these rallies will be organizing to contact local representatives who are seeking re-election to push for them to support renewing the program. And as we mentioned last week, we were talking about the timing for the program to be renewed effective immediately would have required 71 votes in the house which were not there to get to the and, and speaker welch has said he needs that many democrat votes before he'll put it up as i understand it well after january 1st it only takes 60. and so i think the the window is there if the if the program is scaled back somewhat and directed more focused on really poor kids, kids of color, and if the supporters, the advocates for the program really kind of identify which lawmakers might be likely to support this program, 
if we give them some encouragement and make this an issue for them as they head into the election year. Anna, maybe you can give us an update on another uh, hot-button issue that did not get addressed in the fall session, and that was Chicago's school board elections. There's some dis- disagreement, I guess, on how this is going to work, so fill us in on where this is at and maybe what the possible solutions are going to be. Yes, we're less than a year away now from uh, Chicago voters going to the polls for the first time to elect uh, members to their their school board under a law that was passed and signed in 2021. Um Surprisingly, lawmakers came back the fall in this fall and agreed in terms on the boundaries of what the 20 districts are going to look like. But the um, the fight that broke out was over how the elections were going to be conducted because the laws passed said that 10 should be 10 members should be elected in 2024 and 10 appointed by the mayor along with a board president. Um, and there were all sorts of questions about how the mechanics of going of that were going to work. And then, sort of at the last minute, Senate President Don Harmon. Uh, surprised everyone by introducing a, a plan to just elect all 20 members in 2024, uh, which caught supporters in the House off guard who had been working to try to implement the law as it was passed uh, two years ago. And so that's sort of the fight that's going to have to get settled in the spring. They have until April 1st to get it done. Um, there's pressure from folks who would like to run for the board to get it done sooner than that so people can figure out you know, what districts they live in, whether they want to run, and how, how the campaign is going uh, to be handled. All right. Well, let's go to our notes from the field. And Dan, I'll stick with you first. Sure. I wanted to give a shout out to uh, our former Tribune uh, political intern, uh, Hank Sanders, who is now a reporter for the Daily Southtown, which is a sister publication of the Tribune, uh, who has been getting a hard time recently from the administration in South Suburban Calumet City, where uh, State Representative Thaddeus Jones is also the mayor. Um, Hank had been facing uh, tickets from the city for uh, basically asking too many questions of officials there about some flooding issues they've been had it, having. And we found out more recently through some FOIAs that uh, Thaddeus Jones had also sought a court order uh, blocking him from uh, entering City Hall or contacting reporters. So um, I just wanted to give some some kudos to Hank for uh, working really hard and, and sticking with the story and uh, not backing down in the face of this sort of intimidation from from an elected official who wears two hats here in the state of Illinois. Well, kudos to him and Charlie. Well, in the category of, I guess, better late than never, uh, Secretary of State Alexei Janulius announced this week that the Monarch Butterfly specialty license plate is finally available. This is after more than a seven-year delay. And this will be the first plate to be issued under what's called the universal specialty plate program which lawmakers created in 2016 to limit the number of specialty plates at the time there were more than 100 different specialty plates and the legislation said that any new charitable organization would need at least 2,000 illinoisans to place deposits before the plate could get issued and the specialty plates would have a universal standardized design, but they'd have a decal on the left side depicting the cause. So the Monarch plate reached necessary 2000 deposits in 2018 really quickly, but it was never produced despite that. And part of it was there were holdups in the design then COVID-19 and residents more than 2000 had already paid the $10 deposit to pre-order the plate. Well, now, the plates can be 
are going to be sent out and they can be ordered online or by calling the Secretary of State's office. The money from these plates will go to Roadside Monarch Habitat Fund, Habitat Fund, which is administered by the Department of Natural Resources with the goal of adding some 150 million new milkweed stems and other nectar resources. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Thanks to Charlie Wheeler and Dan Petrella with the Chicago Tribune. You can find the show where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.